0: Welcome to Sound & Vision,
1: conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound & Vision, Brian Alfred.
2: Sound & Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden Artist Colors became an employee-owned company in 2002, and in 2010 the employees became the majority owners. And despite worldwide distribution... Golden product is still created on the grounds of the original barn in New Berlin using the highest standards for consistency and quality. You can find their products in pretty much every art store, and you can find more about them at goldenpaints.com. Stephen Westfall is an artist, writer, and educator born in Schenectady, New York, who received his MFA in 1978 from the University of California, Santa Barbara. His first solo exhibition in 1984 at Tracy Garrett in New York's East Village earned reviews in Art in America and Art News. Exhibitions followed during the 1980s and 90s at Daniel Newberg Gallery in New York, Gallery Paul in Munich, and Gallery Wilma Locke in St. Gallen, Switzerland. An exhibition of paintings took place at André Emmerich Gallery in New York in 1995, followed by several exhibitions at Gallery Zurcher in Paris. Stephen has been represented in New York by Lennon Weinberg since 1997. Recent work has been exhibited in Kunstgalerie Bonn in Germany and David Richard Gallery in Santa Fe. Stephen has been included in several important survey exhibitions of abstract painting, including a show at the Musée d'Art Moderne in St. Etienne, France in 1997, and in both exhibitions titled Conceptual Abstraction, first at the Sydney Janus Gallery in 1991, and in the exhibition that revisited that show, which took place at Hunter College in 2012. His works are in the collections of the Whitney Museum, the Kemper Museum in Kansas City, the Louisiana Museum in Denmark, the Munson Williams Proctor Museum in Utica, New York, the Baltimore Museum of Art, and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. He's received grants and awards from the National Endowment of the Arts, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Nancy Graves Foundation, the Guggenheim Foundation, and he received the Rome Prize Fellowship and spent a year at the American Academy of Rome during 2009 and 2010. He's a professor of the Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers University and in the graduate program at Bard University. He's a contributing editor at Art in America. This is the first of two conversations I had with Stephen. This one was in his industry city studio in Brooklyn. He tells the story of growing up, making art, writing, and much more. Here's our conversation.
1: I feel like Steve Jobs. Oh, like, hold yeah, it. yeah, 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 yeah. And that's there's, good too. Yeah, because there's not too much. There's not too much. Uh, mic noise. Mic noise. It's yeah. good
2: at getting out the. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, emails. Supposedly, they're going to do this thing, or they're thinking to pass a law in New York that a workplace can't email you after 6 p.m. on the week nights and on the weekends at all. Which should be the case,
1: I, except that don't you think that that would that's like over legislation in the sense that that just means you're going to get forty million more emails during the day, that's and it, it and, and your you know your the kind of breathing time you want even between emails just vanishes.
2: Yeah, Well, I think this is also texting because some people get like their boss texting them late at night or on the week on a Sunday morning. Which is a little intrusive. Two
1: two, yeah. I mean, I'd, back
2: in the day, that wouldn't have happened. It's not like they would show up at your house and be like, "Hey, I got this form; I need you to fill out." <laughs> but now they just, can do that.
1: Yeah. Well, i i I see. I still see the um, the possibility for further mischief
2: true yeah yeah
1: i'm not i'm as a quietist it's like no don't pass don't don't do another law because that's gonna like that that's, it's gonna like do i mean i'm big on regulation of like british petroleum and and uh yeah. and uh human rights and stuff but but passing a law about emails is just going to squeeze all the emails into the smaller available space right and 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 It's just going to push everything else you do besides looking at emails at work during work time out of work time. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you're just going to be responding all the time. Yeah, yeah. So we're just going to be like those fatties in um, Wally. Oh, yeah. You know, because we're not going to even be able to get up from our desks. Oh, but we will be standing around because our bosses will have decided that we should be standing and not sitting. Instead of sitting. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, that's like the way a v- vigorous office works. And we should all be able to see each other. So we can't even like pick our nose right, in private. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's like fucking Brazil. The right. movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah.
2: vividly that that endless corridor of yeah. desks going back forever. <laughs> That's kind of can come true great
1: wonderful wonderful and it's all like, all based on enlightened legislation right right <laughs> and
2: productivity <laughs> efficiency and no life <laughs> exactly. so um well let's talk about you um schenectady, schenectady correct yes is that where you're
1: Yes. Born and raised. I w- no, I wasn't raised. I was I was raised in California, San Francisco. Oh, actually. really? Yeah. When did you? Okay, move this is a story. Um, um, my parents are from California, but my family is on my father's side is classic upstate, and on my mother's side is is Huguenot. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I don't have a trace of anything other than white privilege in my. System, sadly, yeah. Uh, I know it's terrible. (laughs) So, yes, my middle name is Van Rensselaer. Wow, which is um, uh, the West Falls were sort of retainers to the Van Rensselaers, and then one thing led to another, and there was you know, so now I'm like a you know, I'm a billionth cousin to the Van Rensselaers, um, but I have the name, yeah. And uh, and I was born in Schenectady, I'm dyslexic. So when I was in first grade and you had to fill out your full name and your place of birth, I was immediately slotted into um, the slow lane and miscreants because I would throw tantrums. Um, uh, I, I think I figured out just through memory, wrote memory, how to spell Schenectady and Van Rensselaer by second or third grade but it took a while not
2: the easiest of names no to no, no start from the jump you know no
1: no but uh, they they since uh both westfall and van rensselaer have double consonants yeah um it may have gotten me started on on thinking visually yeah, in some to way yeah picture the word instead yeah of, yeah like, to like picture to actually picture the word and um Anyway, my parents are from California. My father was a madman, you know, like the series. Um, he right. was a copywriter for Foot, Cone and Belding. He got a job. At first, he was a copywriter for GE, which after the war was the largest employer in the world. Yeah. And they had the largest PR firm. So in 53, when I was born, my parents had just arrived on the East Coast from California. Um, and it must have been a good gig. I was born in Schenectady. Yeah. And they moved back in three years because they were just so appalled by the weather, you know, being lifelong <laughs> yeah. Californians. Seasonal affection. Yes. Yeah. Well. Uh, and oh my, well, they didn't have the word for it right. back then. They just. Uh, shitty weather, I think uh, they shitty. It. it was. It was like, it, yeah, it was get me out of here yeah. weather. Um, and uh, so I, I was raised in San Francisco about. A mile from where Diebenkorn painted uh, cityscapes one and two, yeah um, so when I first saw those Diebenkorns, which uh, cityscape two is in s f MoMA um i was uh I knew the neighborhood, so felt like I, home. It, it felt it felt like home and it felt like a painting at the same yeah. time because i was I had a very early understanding that paintings were things, so
2: Diebenkorn was good. Yeah, it was really good. There's a specific light that I don't think a lot of other people...
1: I got. talk about that a lot in, in, in other interviews and in classes. California light is very stark and horizontal. Yeah. Um, a lot of glare. And and the cities, with the exception of San Francisco at the time, but even at the time, San Francisco was still a more horizontal city. Yeah. It was... Uh, it had... The skyscrapers in San Francisco were thirty stories high, forty stories high. Not, and of course, now that all that's changed. Right. But um, um, the light uh, comes into these other towns, like you know Fresno and Stockton, and, and uh, in this, there's just no blocking it. And so, in all that short period of Diebenkorn's, uh sort of post-Berkeley series figurative paintings, um, he gets that raking, that those long raking shadows um, that uh, uh, just seem to define an open space that defines uh, a kind of era. Yeah. I mean, the era was also a social era. So, so all those women at home alone. Right. In the presence of the artist, of course. Um, uh, Uh, it was the last moment before I think a lot of women had, you know, began to enter the workforce. I mean, there was a surge around the time I was born of women entering the the workforce, and then things sort of evened out because there was this counter- um, like a pushback, pushback in culture that was that's very well delineated in that book Ninth Street Women. That, that everybody's oh, yeah, It's a yeah, fantastic yeah. book. Yeah, um, I haven't
2: read that yet, but I'm looking forward to there it. There
1: were all these articles in the so-called women's magazines about how to be a good wife and like support your, you know, your working husband. Right. So my mother was a housewife, and she was, she had been an actress, and um, uh, so. Well, how did you? How did creativity enter the fold? Well, my mother was also an artist. Yeah. And, you know, she drew like Boucher. And she would sketch, you know, lovely pastel baby portraits of us and her neighbor's friends. And uh,
2: Self-taught, like she learned herself?
1: No, I, I, I... No, she... W- I, I, you know, that, that's always a question. I, she must have taken classes because she really knew how to, to overlay pastel. Um, that's hard to learn I, on your and, own, right? My mother died fairly young, so that's a question I, that I never really got to ask her. Um, but uh, uh, she, at the same time, also had a great hand, and of course, she only wanted to make pretty things. So yeah. there was that, um, and uh, so she didn't. Re- she had the skill of an artist without really having experienced maybe the the intellectual openness you know in the schools that she went to that sort of challenged her to be an artist um and uh, so she would you know have sketching parties with her friends and she was always the best and uh, even my father painted still lifes with her before I was born and I saw you know on oil paper yeah um And my father was very good at sort of meticulous draftsmanship. Um, uh, But he always said, you know, mom was the artist. They collected paintings at very sort of minimal cost um, of sort of fourth and fifth chair uh, Bay Area figurative school painters and some uh, California impressionists that would come up for auction at, Auction houses like Butterfield, these little California auction houses, and so in the house we had surprisingly interesting paintings. Yeah, um, and real paintings, real, yeah, real, real paintings. Um, um, And they, the posters they did have were the Toulouse Lautrec posters. Right. So um, there was there was a a great deal of visual interest in the house, and. From early on I saw art as an escape but also I never really had lessons you know that were of any use until college and I didn't think you could be an artist until I got into college and that one could be an artist that I could be an artist you know the for men in my generation we were all going to war we were we were there wasn't even a draft there was universal conscription until just before I went to college then they instituted the draft so um, you know being dyslexic, I also had a lot of other attendant um, behavioral issues a d d rest general restlessness um,
2: was that diagnosed at that point or you no just, you could you, you couldn 't no my
1: my my younger brother was diagnosed um, at the time i i was thank god i uh, there was no diagnosis this yeah. is all in retrospect, and i have all the you know i read was as saw or saws was you know what's this horror movie was too (laughs) Uh, uh, and and, um but also i'm synesthetic so i had so i hear i hear a voice when i read Mm -hmm. and i was always able to make that voice whatever the character was intended to be male female young old and um so And even that may be a kind of bicameral um, lack of separation in the bicameral mind issue, you know, hearing voices and and synesthesia, um, cross-mixing of senses. And so it's all part of a a, a glorious package of of unsuitability for modern life, Um, except that um, I was able to make something out of it. And because of being able to hear the text, I was reading at college level at third grade, mm-hmm. not because I'm smart, but because I could he- I could hear the voice in the text. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the problems I have with contemporary theoretical criticism is there's often no voice. Um, whereas in sort of the writing say of someone like harold rosenberg there'd be a voice right um so that would change um uh, once i got to college but uh i came to college as a kind of unhappy literature major um and uh you know san francisco was the 60s so there was already like a lot of alcohol and drugs and and as high school students, we were doing a lot of alcohol and drugs and listening to The Grateful Dead and the acid-laced wine. And right. we got, you know, I and my cohorts got an early start on all of that.
2: Well, you were in ground zero. Uh,
1: well, yeah, in many ways. I mean, it was, it felt like, it felt like a little bit like being in New York um, must have felt in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Um, so in a way i've had i 've been conveniently placed in various areas, um, so that was my adolescence um, because there was that moment when San Francisco really seemed to be the political with the you know uh, with the free speech movement and the panthers and uh, musical um, both in jazz and in um, rock and roll. Um, a lot going on and 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 modern music too i mean mills college had all these you know lou harrison and terry riley you know it was all there and uh uh were you checking that stuff out as much as i could yeah. yeah we had the first underground radio station so by the time i was say 14 13 14 15 it was called kmpx and uh there were two DJs, Roland Young and um I want to say Glenn Howell. Um and they were sort of pickup musicians that would play with Sun Ra. Nice. Um and uh they would they were very eclectic. You would hear Stravinsky and Coltrane and Terry Riley and um John Lee Hooker and 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 Robert Johnson, all in a kind of, and Bob Dylan, all in a free rambling set.
2: Connecting thread, uh, all uh, amazing musicians. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and you could just turn on the station, you know, any time during the day, and that, be, you know, that that was the first as as I think of it, the, probably the first underground radio station in, or the, or the sort of the first free play radio station in the country. I think whatever the station was in new york followed um and uh so th- there was a, a a lot of advanced stuff going on uh, both between san francisco and oakland and and even a little bit later in the 60s people started moving to mill valley yeah. um
2: and you could feel it at the time like it was bubbling and oh, you, you felt the energy as a
1: junior in high school i'd hitchhike with my girlfriend out of, who lived in Tiburon out of but but she we would hitchhike from school to go to San Rafael really um San Anselmo which is a little west of San Rafael to this club called the Lion's Share and i we would see Ramblin' Jack Elliott or Van Morrison's Moon Dance band Crazy. yeah uh you know as as just as a junior um we were just such kids i mean and you know with the with the booze and the and the drugs we were also just playing with fire we had no idea yeah um, but uh so it was all mixed up and i got, and i got to college and i was you know going to be a literature major because it's the only thing i could conceive of doing I could um I really didn't have a head. uh, I I missed trig uh, being ill. I was, um, I had some kind of weird mono or something for the first six weeks of trig in high school. And I was good at math up until that point. And then I came in and I didn't know what was going on. Hard to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to catch up. So uh, I felt I, and I just wasn't great at languages. due to the dyslexic issues, I was very good at English, um, although my spelling and grammar and syntax uh, were atrocious. And that got combed out uh, in college. So I, I started off as a literature major, but I was taking a class from a guy named Paul Warner, who was a good friend of Korns. They were all together in the Bay Area Figurative School, and he was the sort of the resident professor at UC Santa Barbara. And... Um, uh, there was this it was in this school called the College of Creative Studies which had like a kind of Oxford program for uh, literature studies where they just gave you a stack of books about as high as this milk crate Mm -hmm. that uh, we're balancing our microphones on each week and you know you read this and you were supposed to write something um and of course it was impossible you you know people would just weep and have nervous (laughs) breakdowns um and then come into class and act like Parisian and all that. Elect- We'd all smoke in right. class. It was it was a great uh, period for general anarchy. Um, and the reason why I was taking that class in the cultural studies was because the cultural studies was this little school where there was no grades. Um, it was past no credit, so you could take any course you wanted, and um, if you didn't do the work, you it wasn't a fail it was as if you had never taken the class right so the whole reward punishment system was completely removed and you were really on your own based on your own motivation which was a novel way to go to school especially at
0: that
2: time when there were a lot of things at your fingertips i would
1: imagine absolutely to keep you busy and particularly as you know (laughs) I certainly was not a a pre-formed student. Um, uh, You know, I was practically feral. And uh, uh, so there was, you know, all options were on the table except ones that I just physically couldn't do almost, you know, like catch up with trig um, and go on to the calculus. But I... um, so I was taking poetry classes and all of that in Western Civ and uh, in the General Arts and Science College. But this little college really intrigued me. And they said, well, we'll take you um, in literature. They were kind of leery of my melancholy poetry. Um, they gave but you a shot? They said, well, we see something. We'll we'll take you. But have you thought about being an art major? Oh, really? And uh, – the, the 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 honest answer was no. I had never thought about being an art. I was taking a painting class because yeah. I loved easels and canvases, and and I loved the idea of making these sort of image objects. The culture of painting. The, the culture of painting yeah. was was. But I didn't think you could do it. To, I didn't think you could go to school. But <laughs> I mean, like you, you know that's like given. You know, somebody the key to the candy store or something. Yeah. Um So I, what I did was, is I I um, became a double major. And art and English, art and English, which was crazy That's because kind of... because the amount of work oh, yeah. being an English major at the College of Creative Studies was more, not less, and studio um, on top of that, and having a studio. But we had twenty four hour access to studios. There was like a real. Culture in place. And a lot of the students were from New York. Um, and so I got a, a real hurry up education. And I would go to the art, we had a great art library, and I would spend an hour and a half in the art library just about every day, you know, reading the art, you know, reading um, international art journals. So yeah. catching up with contemporary European art as well as art history. And um, yeah, I think I just got immersed in it and there was a real interesting sort of L.A. minimalist scene developing you know, through painting uh, with painters like Billy Albankston and McCracken and mm-hmm. McCracken came to the school and under the auspices of a young tyro named David Trowbridge who um, uh, died also young sadly of a heart attack um, and uh, there was also a figurative painter there named uh, Who's still there? Named Hank Pitcher, who really knows a lot about color, and so I learned a lot about color, and I learned a lot about um, whatever it is that minimalists think about <laughs> did it kind of through David Trowbridge. Yeah, did it yeah. blow your mind at that point? Like, yeah, like every day. Every day was a mind. Every day was mind-blowing. Yeah, and and I sort of uh, blundered into marrying my Joyce teacher. Um, really. It was the 70s, you know, the yeah. early 70s, sort of, and... and things happen. Things happen. <laughs> and then at the same time, um, I was writing for the student newspaper, and somebody had slipped a review to Jack Torkoff, who could sort of decree things. Um, and he told the, the, the UC Santa Barbara Museum curator that he liked this review the way it was written. He said it was very well written. And that emboldened her to put my name forward to Art Week magazine, which was the only magazine then on the uh, West Coast. The uh, art form had left. Um, and uh, the Central Coast correspondent for Art Week magazine had disappeared. Nobody could find him. And in the days it, when you could disappear. So in the days when he literally... Absconded. yeah he vanished <laughs> he he's resurfaced I ran into him a few years ago a perfectly lovely guy yeah. and also a painter um David laguerre anyway so um did you get the job yeah, I got the job so by the time I was a junior, I had my own office I was teaching I was married to to the a, a woman who I was studying with and uh um and i was writing for the only art magazine on the west coast while wow, you
2: fully the, adulted really quickly
1: well i yeah except that i was a kid in an adult's body yeah. it was kind of like those you know children's the, you know theater joke you know where you see kids doing death of a salesman right. with their shirt with their dad's shirt like hanging off their you know <laughs> i was i had not i'd never been out of the state of california since we moved back and i was completely immature you know, in the state of really ultimate arrested development, uh, with only a kind of um, pseudo worldliness based on my reading. Yeah. Um, I, I, I. But my empathy could only extend so far because I hadn't made any of the mistakes that these characters would make and recover from or not. Um, yet I began to. You know, I had. Um, uh, so then I moved, to Cal- I moved to New York after my first wife and I uh, uh, split up and uh, um, I came there with $2,000 and I moved into you know apartment on the Upper West Side with, a, with the four people I knew from the school who, mm-hmm. who had emigrated there and, and what, what year is this? that was uh, New Year's Eve 1979 what was, uh, the
2: upper, what was it like then?
1: Um, smaller than it is now, yeah. you know, and you could, you know, live in pre-war apartments on the Upper West Side for 1200 a, um a month, <laughs> uh, six room, small, you know, pre-war apartments, six room, uh, that is to say, so we all moved in and we were paying like $300, <laughs> That'll
2: get you a couple minutes worth of rent. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: That's a timeshare yeah. uh, for uh, the, the maid's room, right? Mm. So, um,
2: now did you start working right away? Or yeah, I actually, writing?
1: actually, I, I, I started working right away. I hung up paintings in the bedroom, and um, I knew. I, I mean, I didn't think I was going to be an artist. I just wanted to be someplace where art mattered. Yeah. So, I tried to get on a mailing list at um, the Pam Adler Gallery, and uh, they said, uh, well, we only have room on our mailing list for writers and collectors, because these are four-color postcards, and they're just really expensive to send out, and this is one of the Pam Adler Gallery at that time, was along with... Barbara Gladstone, that when really went on to be something. Uh, Pamander Gallery was considered to be one of the sort of the 57th Street miracles that yeah. that, that, that galleries were moving back to Midtown. Um, and I said, "Well, I'm a writer. Um, in fact, I wrote the cover article in Art Week on the artist you're showing, which was who is this sort of collageist named uh, an assemblage sculptor named Ira Joel Haber, and." Uh, uh, the assistant uh, uh, who was Arthur Solway, the son of Carl Solway, who had the, the not in New York gallery in Cincinnati mm-hmm. um, that showed a lot of castelli artists, um, got all excited and introduced me to um, arts magazine as a potential writer, uh, presumably to write about Pam Adler artists right. yeah, yeah yeah, which I you know I went ahead and did. Um, but yeah I got that's how I got my start. I was just trying to get on a mailing list, yeah. and it seems like back then, it seems as though I have to stop saying like it seems as though back then um, it was things would happen sort of almost unintentionally by virtue of any kind of instigation of a conversation, something might spin off from that yeah. Um, still, um, because certainly that's how things seemed to work in the art world in the you know in the forties and fifties. Just to be interested and to be a body in space meant something was going to happen. Now you know, of course, there's so many artists. Part you know, uh, to, you know, by virtue of MFA programs, which kept, which kept proliferating. Okay. Um, so we have a glut, um, and. Uh, you know, as someone who teaches, I keep worrying that I'm part of a Ponzi scheme. However, you know, it's, I've read some Future Shock articles that says that, that the only satisfied people going forward in the future will be artists, because there won't be enough work for everybody right. uh, as everything gets, you know, automated ro- Automated. Yeah. and uh, I was going to say roboted. Um, yeah. <laughs> same thing. Same thing. <laughs> um you know we're going to eventually move to some kind of you know universal base income eventually and um the artists are the only people that are going to have some kind of um means of responding to their world in a in in a you know in some kind of meaningful way um instead
2: of just receptacles for just receptacles for entertainment
1: exists yeah yeah infotainment Um, right um so, I don't. So I think we're you know artists. I think of artists as philosophers, basically. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I think what we're, what we do is we sort of engage in a form of material and visual philosophy. You know, we are having conversations with our cohorts who we met, who are not even sometimes sharing the same time zone, um, and uh, and many of whom are not even alive you know yeah. uh, but we're kind of in this swirl of of call and response um and uh, uh we're lucky in that way i think you know artists writers are all anybody interested in craft is someone who's going to be interested in history yeah in some way right that, and that
2: it's your language what well, you're speaking with in a way
1: exactly, and 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 history for that type of person is going to be more of a living thing yeah. than a than a dead thing, right? Because um, you're
2: engaged within that language. You know what I mean? With whatever you're making, it's it's kind of yeah made yeah. up of all that other stuff. So you're like actively participating in it, or I guess everyone is to an extent, but maybe you're just more conscious of it as you're. Doing what you're doing yeah I,
1: I wonder if that if this whole interest in twenty three and me and and other sort of DNA yeah. uh, uh, services from people who maybe not m- might not be artists um, is a way is a kind of sort of subliminal way of getting involved with history right. you know in some connecting. way like the, connecting to something like yeah. that like you know form of Shinto ancestral worship right, right. Uh, but because in order to learn about your ancestor you have to contextualize your ancestor so you wind up sort of getting interested in that period yeah. or something and whatever anybody is going to tell be able to tell you about that period um, it would be very interesting to do a survey of how many artists do 23 and Me or those services and to see if the number is actually lower I haven't done it because I haven't done it. Yeah, it, who's got the time? I'm already talking to the dead. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, man, yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah.
2: That's really interesting. We yeah. gotta do a case study on average. <laughs> The average uh, ask, you know, 500 artists and 500 non-artists. The problem is is,
1: is tracking down 500 artists. I mean, everybody knows them, but they're never in, you know. (laughs) Don't I know it? That would be tricky. um, But that does make perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, I guess another thing that happened back in college and and accompanied me through the transition to New York was... um, I was pretty adept I learned painting figuratively very quickly um, and I sort of got the the the, um, how to move gestural paint around and also have a complete surface but I heard Agnes Martin speak in Pasadena in 73 And I converted wholesale to abstraction after that because I became, well, yeah. And it wasn't just her. It was in the context of a retrospective that traveled to the Pasadena Museum, which I guess it was the Pasadena Museum back then, introduced by Barbara Haskell, who was something like 27 or something and was, and, and, uh, and of course it was brilliant. Um, and, uh, uh, and everybody knew she was going to New York and uh I saw in the object quality of Agnes Martin's paintings that um, the little twelve inches were as monumental as the six foot squares yeah um, and that's not easy to do no, and you could and it, but but you could give those twelve inch square paintings a lot of space mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, my sort of um intuition about painting being an image object um was um, made concrete and and um, and i be you know at at that very moment the LA minimalists were coming into the College of Creative Studies like you know one after another John Miller Jim Hayward um, you know again all friends of David Trowbridge others um, and 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 other really smart people, Charles Gaines, Roland Reese came through. Oh, um, Roland Reese. Yeah. Uh,
2: he was a visiting artist when I was in undergraduate school.
1: Where was that?
2: Uh, when I was at Penn State. Oh, that's it. He's he came, such a wonderful guy. He really was great.
1: Yeah, and so smart about, he. you know, he, he made all those, he's made, you know, he's still making those great sort of mysterious assemblages. Yeah. But he had a lot to say about painting and color. Yeah. And, uh. Uh, I learned. A l- I probably learned as much in, in, in an hour of listening to him, um, or two hours, and Terry Allen came through anyway. But Roland Reese really, um, uh, he had a lot to say about life scale and um, mixed complementary colors working together. Yeah. And I still teach mixed complementary colors and I still use mixed complementary colors in my paintings. Um, so the, you know, the red has a little green in it, the orange has a little blue in it, the mm-hmm. blue has a little orange in it, and uh, the yellow has a mixture, or the white has a mixture of all three, and that's how a kind of common light is generated in yeah. some way. Um, yeah, exhibit okay. A. Collective action. Yes. Of color, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, it's funny, you know, these pivotal moments... Uh, how they still stand out on the mind. Um, so at, by 82 I was living in the East Village on Avenue Way and uh the East Village was more of an expressionist scene. It really wasn't you know and 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 kind of um, minimalist-inflected abstract painting. Was Kind of a dead horse Yeah And Because it was just Too serious In a way Um, And Which is another way of saying Maybe it took itself Too seriously So Probably the whole rest Of my life As a painter Has been figuring out um, How to be playful And ironic With the language That I kind of inherited And you know understanding that irony is not cynical but but really a, a just um a historical sense of doubleness and having come around to the same path, you know, another time with maybe a different point of view. Yeah. And um and not making them nostalgic. You know, the big effort is to make them sort of give them historical depth and at the same time You know, without nostalgia, more of a sense of play, current play. Um,
2: Is that kind of like you think of the equation when you're making your work is this? It feels like there's that playful composition, interaction, color, all kind of like it's like this balance. And sometimes it's a little feels a little more serious and a little more straight laced and powerful. And sometimes it gets a little looser and a little more, you know, um, dealing with movement and that kind of nuance of composition, like, is that pretty much? Yeah, I uh, where you live conceptually in your mind as you're working on your, your these abstractions.
1: I well that, and then there's just again the whole telescoping history of abstract painting, which flows through my mind. Um, my desire to sort of lock the painting into its Scale, and while simultaneously um, suggesting that the world continues beyond the border, yeah. So, which which often has to be done through movement. I mean, the whole reason I I sort of went to the diagonals after coming, you know, before the diagonals, I was making um, these funny. Suggestive stage drop landscapes coming out of broken grid paintings, mm-hmm. and before the landscapes were the broken grid paintings, and um, and then I was working with some patterns uh, that I, I lived in the Southwest for a while that I sort of inherited from that, and uh, but I became very you know mindful that I I just I didn't want to be plumbing say Navajo culture Uh, and uh, I you know the Saltillo was actually given to the Navajo uh, 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 through the Saltillo diamond uh, uh, up through perhaps Mexico I think there's a town in Mexico called Saltillo Mm -hmm. Um, and it actually comes from um, the Middle East or the Silk Road. Um, perhaps all the way from China, but it came through Spain and then was brought from Spain but the the, the colored uh, uh, use, of, use of the salt of the diamond in the saltillo pattern that I, that I used briefly for uh, a time i you know thinking about Ken Nolan also um, I, I you know I was certainly influenced by say Navajo crystal. Uh, trading post patterns and, and I love the crystal rugs um, In particular um, So Prior to those images I was making grid paintings uh, Broken grid paintings uh, And prior to that I was making sort of planar paintings that Where the planes were locked in Horizontally and vertically To the, the dimensions of the canvas. And I think the the plainer paintings were more influenced by John McLaughlin mm-hmm. and maybe very early Bryce Martin. Um, and uh, and then the grid paintings I, I realized I had to get the Agnes Martin monkey off my back, so I tried to make a grid painting. Yeah. And I realized I couldn't make it Agnes Martin if I tried. Because um her grids are all drawn out on pencil mm-hmm. and I insisted because I love the materiality of paint so much. on making that line really a band. Yeah. I'm, you know, they can't see us, but I'm gesturing in front of you. Right, I'm like, right. I'm thin. a thin band. Yeah. Which has shape value as a bearer of color. Yeah. And, um, and then I also, I couldn't make it stable. I have what's known as again, part of the, the dyslexic makeup, the physiognomy of, Westfall is is that I have mixed dominance. Mm-hmm. I do some things left handed, some things right handed, which is not the same as ambidexterity. Right, um, and um, so I, I have this. It sort of expresses itself. My first wife pointed this out. It's very great observation um, that it expresses itself as a desire for symmetry, a desire for order, a desire for um balance yeah, and even sort of uh, uh, a conventional life yeah. you know the the the, uh, the melancholy of being an artist is is that there's just some things our subconscious won't let us do you know um and uh and yet i can't do it i can't hmm. do it i can't live i can 't live in a symmetrical world i it it i makes me crazy but the so i have to there exactly so i have to break it but still indicate the desire and those broken grids kind of had that that this sort of they had they wanted to be grids so bad mm-hmm. but they couldn't right you know and no, I uh, think that,
2: that dynamic seems to be at the <laughs> core of your work right? yeah yeah it was like order little chaos but or, it's it's kind of you know getting close to something but not not, completely adhering
1: yeah, it pushing just, back. It put yeah, there's like some resistance. Yeah. Um and uh you know totally expressed in formal terms. It's not locked into a kind of um it's not a narrative of resistance. Right. You have to have it's it's a it's a phenomenology of resistance um uh through you know formal terms. Yeah. Um and uh you know i suppose you know i can identify it in my work and i would imagine that uh, most artists would claim that they come up against something like that in their work um but i really identify it in in, in my work yeah. you know um i think the resistance that 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 struggle has ironic overtones and social implications um so landscapes that are kind of still poster spaces um uh spaces that continue on while being locked in happy colors that are somehow not quite as happy the longer you look at them right yeah you know but all but in some ways still integrated and uh, um and a, and a kind of historical awareness you know that uh you know um Allows me to play with, say, Harlequin patterns and yeah. stuff, and and uh, um, you know we'll we'll see where things go next. I just did these vertical paintings, and they're going to uh, they were just in that show, the last show that mm-hmm. was at the uh, Lennon Weinberg, and and uh, they're going to go up to the American Academy of Arts and Letters in nice. the, their quirky little annual yeah, uh, yeah. that they do. Um, and uh you're in the, you're we're sharing the studio here and you can see that there's three paintings up that are not coherent in their lint in their continuity right. at all they're all, all three are very different from each other and i think there's uh the one that's behind you is sort of characteristic of this kind of perspectival yeah sort of shifting plane uh of of that what that would be a diamond grid if it was You know, really locked in. Right. But at the same time, it's still locked in. There's like endpoints that like sort of end in the corners, and um, but but you get the sense that there's a plane that's pushing in from the other side, and like
2: you're only seeing a part of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I want I I've I've always wanted uh, that action in my paintings. I think it works really well with architecture. Yeah. Um. That that you could put a painting like that at the end. You know, in some room with a lot of space in it, the architecture would frame it in some way and you would get the sense that somehow the pictorial space that other painters might or another kind of painting might ask you to sort of imagine as being behind the picture plane is actually like the hide of a big animal pushing in yeah. from the other side of the picture plane. And that's something that goes back Again, it's more locked in, and I'm trying to make more motion—a kind of gentle motion, but kind of a lean-in motion. You know, like the way a cat leans up against you at yeah, night. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, uh, the way a cat hogs the bed, basically <laughs> um, uh, pushes you out Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, that that lean-in motion is s- suggests. A kind of almost another plane of existence that uh, that's coming in, and I think that you know, like the first painter that really got that was um, Barnett Newman in his painting "The Wild," which is an inch and three quarters wide and something like seven feet high, Mm -hmm. Um, and you got the sense that 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 there was a vast that it was only showing you the zip and a little bit of a rind of the vast space that the zip was um, coming in so I I guess if you got if one got the the, the real sort of uh, truth of these paintings even though you're looking at a square or a rectangle with these paintings you would still see them as shaped canvases right you know in a funny way right that because they're because the shape is so important for for describing both the space that's here and the space that's not here yeah and well, I, I've always thought of my paintings as being very task-oriented in that way. In the same way that in a the landscape, there's a waterfall, and that's what's making noise. Yeah. That there's you know, you look at a lot of landscapes, and there's something that's making noise, which is why we should not be looking at paintings in rooms where off in an off room, there's like a Bill Viola video growling oh, yeah, away. Yeah, right. You know, that that's the problem. I mean, I, I keep thinking that, man, we're gonna have to have. Floors in museums devoted to painting. Mm -hmm. If we, because we have to clear out the extraneous noise. There's nothing wrong with videos. As you make videos that are beautiful, Um, but paintings can't exist wholly in themselves in in um, in spaces where um, live action um, sound is competing with them. Right, just but, in
2: the same way you wouldn't hang paintings in that installation room with the video piece, because that would yeah, be pretty distracting right. to the, the suspension of disbelief. Well, that would be watching. wrong. Right. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, they'll, they'll have to figure that stuff out. The whole new media, how that gets along.
1: Right, right. You know, I welcome I welcome our new media overlords, but <laughs> right. uh, but uh, but just the you robots. know, yeah, just have a let's have a preserve for. You know, a, a game preserve for, for painting. Yeah, definitely. just so we, you know, so we can get the simulacrum of, of a painting in its ideal architectural situation. Um, yeah. Did you um, ever
2: see that old animation? Because it, it comes to mind when I look at your work, the dot and the line.
1: Oh well, yeah. Well, the dot and the line was originally a. a it was a book by the guy who uh, wrote the Phantom Tollbooth Really? Yeah, I believe so. I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah. And I just
2: know the Chuck Jones animation.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I know the I I know the original book. And of course the Phantom Toll is a classic. Who wrote that book? Jules Pfeiffer did the illustrations for the Phantom Toll Um if we had our iPhones just ready to whip I'll, out, we I'll, could do I'll it. I'll Google it when we yeah. finish. <laughs> um yeah, so the Dot and the line and the Phantom Toll Booth are by the same guy, I believe. Uh, and then there's also the movie that's kind of like it's not a spoof of the dot and the line but it came out in the, roughly the same era the critic with a voiceover by Mel Brooks which is like which I've is, is plainer animation and this guy is going what the hell is I <laughs> <laughs> maybe I haven't seen it yeah. I got to see that it's called you, the critic Yeah you can find it on YouTube, YouTube yeah. yeah I know it's uh, on YouTube Yeah Yeah <laughs> uh, uh so did you like the cartoon? Oh, the cartoon's hilarious. But the dot and line was is just really lovely.
2: It's a beautiful kind of narrative, formal abstraction. You know what I mean? Like a merging yeah. of narrative and yeah. formal abstraction in in a way that I don't think anyone else really did like
1: that. It holds up. Oh yeah, I yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it in since I was a kid. But uh, and as a kid I did I didn't I guess one of the one of the things that helped, I right, that were uh, that held me back, going whole hog into art. I loved art, I, but I was I loved expressionism mm-hmm. and Van Gogh and and German expressionism. Um, my grandmother was a an interesting woman. She was a hardcore right wing John Bircher, but she also had a she she was a teacher and she taught on the reservation and in uh, Arizona and, and uh, she um, had interesting books including a book of German Expressionist prints that even when I was six, seven years old I buried myself in that book. Yeah, they're they're uh, captivating right? Yeah, that yeah. Work. And um, so I always uh, I mean one thing I learned in my art classes in school and they all would tell my parents oh he's so creative because I, I could make the sky yellow you mm-hmm. know from German Expressionist yeah um, and um, but I never again I never thought I was going to be a painter because painting seemed like a lot of hard work I was basically a lazy kid um, uh, it, it, I motivated I learned how to paint figuratively and keep things in the scale but um, also I was never satisfied I learned how to draw by watching John Nagy on TV who was like Bob Ross before there was Bob oh, Ross. Bob Ross yeah. But he was also much more about um skill based drawing. Yeah. And so you learned perspective by and you could buy John Nagy and it's Nagy with a G N A G Y. Okay. Um learn to draw with John Nagy. And uh I would make copies off the television set, watching uh, you know, I guess it was Um, pbs or whatever it was back then um and uh so by the time i was in high school i had a working knowledge of perspective and i knew how to use the whole space of a rectangle but there were no art teachers in high school they were all gym teachers Mm -hmm. you know it was really babysitting and so you know i would go to art i would go to school and they would say, well, what do you want to do today, Steve? And art, let's go. I want to paint like Clifford Still. Well, okay, here's like, you know, some oat paper, here's some powdered tempera, and here's a camel hair brush. You know, go to town. Yeah. No, I had no... Even then, I wanted to paint in planes, and there was no one to show me how to stretch a canvas or really speak to this... Sense that that the painting was an image object, an image slash object. It wasn't a picture. Yeah, it was something else. It was much more activated, and uh, I think that's why you know what I was interested in, really interested in, was architecture. Yeah, and I would bring home books, you know, as a twelve-year-old on on Louis Barragon, and you know, from the library that was. A real event. everything the distance you know I I still come go back my family's still in the Bay Area so Mm. sometimes I drive by my old neighborhoods in um, uh, west south San Francisco not the town of South San Francisco but the southern borders of San Francisco proper and uh, you know it's just funny to remember to sort of be experience how to little legs a very short distance is a long distance yeah you know, definitely, um, and uh, so it was really an adventure to, to walk from one end of Park Merced up past Stonestown to the Stonestown Library, uh, public library, where yeah. I had a ball. But I would, and I would get Corbusier and Louis Kahn. I, I remember I was really proud of my Louis Kahn book. So it was amazing. One of the most amazing things that it, that, that has happened in my life was getting the Prix de Rome. And having Louis Kahn's studio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Um, so this idea of the image object as an activated thing in active space is something that is united by thinking to architecture. So doing public art, mm-hmm. public scale art, has been a maybe the, the biggest development over the last decade or so.
2: It's opened up a whole new world.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh,
2: uh, well, I feel like...
1: So that so the subway station, you know, the yeah. the, the uh, uh, not really a subway; it's an elevated station. Right. in And Astoria was really spectacular thing to have been able to do.
2: Yeah, opened a whole new way of envisioning work and people seeing it.
1: We'll see. Yeah, I mean, up until that point, it had all been painting. So to do do something with glass which also, you know, is about movement because you're seeing it from two sides instead of one side. Yeah. And day and night, it's so activated in that way um, that, uh, uh, you know, I hope I get more opportunities to do something like that. Yeah, definitely. uh, It was a great gift to be able to do that. But then come back to painting, which still has this amazing... um, Magical um, uh, talismatic almost sort of way with being um, both and yeah. not either or right right you know um, in terms of how it deals with space definitely and uh, and then you know there's color and composition you know yeah. there's, uh, there's all this both and stuff going on, you know um.
2: It gives you a lot. Yeah, yeah. In different ways, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's can you can you do me a favor? Sure. I've never done a two-parter before, but maybe I could have you by my studio, and we could record some more. I would love that. That'd I would okay. love that. Yeah, let's do a part two. Is that good? That's great. You can check out the website, soundandvisionpodcast.com, to find more images that I take of artists in their studios. And you can also follow the podcast on Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast. You can check out my work at alfredstudio or paintchanger.com. Make sure you stay tuned next week for part two where steven visits my studio and we talk a little bit more about art and writing and music and a bunch of other stuff thanks so much for your support please leave us a rating and review on itunes it really helps out